It's the Deadline Junkies podcast with your hosts, Jordan Emiola, Kirsten Porter, and Rand Shammy. Our guest today is Matea Green, known for being a writer on Cobra Kai, being a stand-up comedian, and writing one of the best episodes of Cobra Kai, The Good, The Bad, and The Badass. Welcome, Matea. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so our first question, we were curious uh, how you came up in Cobra Kai, because we know you started as a script coordinator, so what was the journey like uh, becoming a writer on the show? Uh, so I started on season two as the showrunner's assistant, uh, which is the best introduction you can have to television, because uh, I, I got to sit in on the writer's room, uh, I got to go to set in Atlanta, and I got to hang out in post-production as well, so I was just shadowing the showrunners through all of it. And then for season three, uh, they promoted me to writer's assistant and script coordinator. Um, And, you know, in that job, uh, if you've ever had that job, it's a tough one, but you do sometimes get a chance to pitch in the room. Sometimes you get thrown, you know, a couple of smaller things to write. um, And I did, you know, my best with those. And so they ended up assigning me a script for season three. And so that's the one that you just talked about, the good, the bad and the badass just came out on Netflix. And then uh, when we got the season four pickup, they bumped me up to staff writer. And uh, they are filming season four right now. So that's where we are. Nice. Did Um, you want to be a writer before that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, uh, moved out to L.A. six years ago with the goal of becoming a writer. Um, I started as an assistant uh, for an agent at CIA. I worked for a TV lit agent, um, which, again, is a really great experience to see that side of the business. And then after a year and a half or so, I went to work for one of her clients for a couple of years and then uh, wound up on Cobra Kai after that. Nice. Awesome. Has a uh, stand-up helped you write for TV? Uh, it has. Um, I think the most important thing is just, you know, the confidence of like getting up on stage, saying something and hearing it bomb and then like <laughs> not dying. Cause that's like most people's worst nightmare is, you know, getting on stage and getting a horrible reaction. But once you do that, you know, if you're stand-up, you're doing that every single night, like three or four times a night. And once you get used to it, then you get used to the idea of, you know, being in a writer's room and saying something and you're not worried so much about looking stupid and you're not worried about having your ideas rejected. So it just it's definitely helpful um, in terms of the way you approach it. Uh, It made me a lot better at pitching and just sort of having the confidence and not getting butthurt every time my ideas (laughs) got shot down. Were you a stand up before you were a writer? No, I was a writer first and uh, it was something that I started doing because I just thought maybe this will help me with my writing. Maybe this will make me a better writer. And I ended up just loving stand-up on its own as well. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to do right now. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't been doing a lot of Zoom shows or anything like that because it's just, you know, it's not the same for me. But yeah, it's uh, something that I was drawn to for the writing side of it. You know, I'm not, I'm not an actor. I'm not a performer. I just... Uh, really like the, you know, the chance to write in a very different style. Uh, you know, stand-up is really all about brevity and getting to the point quickly, which is another thing that's very useful in TV yeah. writing. Did stand-up help with the career um, at all? I mean, like networking? Um, it has a little bit, you know, I think it's definitely one of the things, uh, you know, working on Cobra Kai, I had sent my bosses a clip of my stand-up and like, because it's a five-minute clip versus you know, uh, like 30 or 60 page script, they were, you know, more likely to watch it. 
So, you know, it helps in that way. Um, you know, I was never like a, a big enough stand up to get any opportunities, you know, from <laughs> that. You know, I wasn't like doing the comedy store every night or anything like that. Um, just small shows around town. But um, I think it helped more in terms of my attitude and my writing and my confidence more so than in any kind of networking. Mm, nice. I never uh, imagined the stand up set as a sample. That's definitely something to think about. <laughs> Do you have a favorite comedian? I've always loved John Mulaney. Um, I think he's one of the best writers um, in stand-up. I think if you look at his act, the way he chooses his words so carefully. Um, and I think people don't realize that stand-ups do that. You know, I think you watch Marvelous Miss Maisel and she just goes up there and talks. And that's, you know, some people can do that. But um, a lot of the great stand-ups are very good writers and they are very careful with their word choice. And uh, that's something that I, I really like about John Mulaney. I want to know if you have a favorite joke and um, maybe be, no, first favorite joke. And then I want to know what your strategy to having a, a good joke is. A uh, favorite joke of mine or favorite joke of someone else's? Oh no, yours. Mine. Uh, my favorite joke is a joke that has never, ever, ever worked uh, and never, ever will. Uh, <laughs> the joke. <laughs> um, it's uh, I'm so Jewish. My safe word is Dayenu which if you are not Jewish, that joke is not funny at all. If you are Jewish, that joke is hilarious. And it's really not, the word doesn't translate at all. So you can't explain it. Um, and it's a stupid joke to, to be my favorite because it never works, but I love it and I'll, I'll stick to it. <laughs> one of my favorite jokes is also one that never works. And I just love it because it makes everybody uncomfortable because they don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it works in shows, especially if you tell people, you know, the follow up to that line is uh, for the non-Jews in the room. That was a really great joke. And I'm sorry you're missing out. And <laughs> that always works. You know, you pretend you're going to explain it and then you don't. So how do you make a great joke? Um, the, a great joke is just about surprise. You have to set the audience up to expect one thing and then do something else, basically. So um, a really good joke. At a really good example. Um, I can't even remember who it was. It was, it's not a nice joke. It's a uh, battered women. Sounds delicious. That's a joke. It's <laughs> horrific, right? But it's so surprising. <laughs> it is not exactly where I thought you were going to go. Very simple and, you know, shocking, but also it's extremely effective. So it's, you know, the setup, tell the audience what to expect. And then the punchline is the subversion of that expectation. And it can be, you can do it in four words. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get back to Cobra Kai because let's be honest, we really want to talk about it and we love the sure. show. Uh, so what was it like writing on Cobra Kai? Um, it was, I mean, it's a great experience. I mean, especially, you know, for, for my first ever scripts, um, I was learning from some really incredible writers, people, you know, who have written huge movies and obviously I created this hit show so that it was a great learning experience. You're writing for amazing actors and iconic characters uh, in, in Ralph Macchio and Billy Zabka. So that's really exciting. You're playing in this sandbox that, you know, every kid who watched The Karate Kid wanted to play in. And uh, so it was just a really gratifying, fun experience. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I wasn't on set for my episode, so, you know, I didn't get to be part of the production side, but uh, I was in post-production for it. And it's just, you know, so cool to, to watch it come to life and, and see actors saying the words that you wrote. It's really exciting. Did you watch Karate Kid as a kid? Uh, I actually, I read the novelization um, before I ever watched the movie. Cause I was like, I didn't watch, I wasn't allowed to watch a ton of movies growing up or a ton of TV. And so I just, I read a lot of books. So I had read it and then like, I don't think I ever watched the movie until I was in college and it was just nothing looks the way I had imagined it. It was a very weird experience, but yeah, I had watched the uh, original Karate Kid movie. I didn't watch the sequels until I got the job on Cobra Kai. Uh, but you know, the original, it's, you know, even if you haven't seen it, you know, it, it's just so yeah. iconic and there's so many lines that get repeated. And I knew what the crane kick looked like even without having seen it before. <laughs> Do you have a favorite character to write for? Uh, my favorite character is always Tori. Um, I think she's, you know, uh, she's the character who I wish we could spend like an entire show with to, to delve into, you know, her past and all of her issues. I think she's, you know, the character who really doesn't give a shit what people think about her. She cares about, you know, herself and her family. And um, I think she has some pretty serious trauma in her life. And in a way, this is a show about trauma and about the way, ways that people deal with their own trauma. And I think it's interesting to see someone who, you know, in another environment, you know, if she joined Miyagi-Do, could be just taking a totally different path. But she, you know, fell in, unfortunately, with the, with the wrong dojo. And that's how this world works. You get in the wrong dojo, you're, you're an evil person now. <laughs> Do you uh, have a favorite episode of the show? And the answer can be yours. And what made it your favorite? Uh... I think actually my favorite episode is probably um, 305, Miyagi-Do, written by the amazing Bob Dearden. Um, it's the episode where Daniel learns, there's so much going on in that episode. And like, it's the episode Daniel learns the secrets of Miyagi-Do. It's the episode where Miguel starts to show some progress in his recovery. And then there's that incredible um, dual fight sequence, you know, between Robbie and Juvie and then the kids at the um, laser tag place so I mean there's just so much going on there's Amanda and Kreese it's like it was that must have been a very difficult one to shoot um I remember in post-production it was like oh my gosh this is just you think the episode's ending and then there's another thing and then another thing and so that was definitely a really fun uh fun one to watch for me nice so you've also done the production side of things and has that helped with writing do you feel like that's um improved your writing yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really important for writers to be aware of what is and isn't shootable, not just in terms of writing, you know, ridiculous CGI flying dragons or whatever into your scripts. Like, I think most logical people know that that's not shootable, but just simple things. Like, I, I remember in an early script, I'd written a sequence where the characters were like running back and forth across the soccer field. And my bosses at the time, my boss at the time told me like, you know what, that's actually going to be kind of annoying to shoot. Why don't you have them stay in place doing like burpees instead? And it's that kind of thought process um, that you don't really understand until you're on set and you're watching people move the camera and uh, watching them work with the actors and understanding things like, you know, don't ever, you know, you don't want too many like one line characters because if you can condense them, you know, you can save a lot of money. You don't want a ton of different locations. You don't want, you know, um, things like, you know, with the Hawk character on Cobra Kai, you know, he has this gigantic back tattoo. And so anytime we have Hawk taking off his shirt, that's like, 
that kid has to spend two hours in the makeup chair. And so stuff like that, you know, I think once you're on set, you start to learn a lot about it and you start to write scripts that are just a lot more producible, uh, which makes them more enticing for, for studios and for producers uh, who want to make them. How do they keep his hair up, by the way? Like, That's his real hair. Uh, that is the actor's real hair. They use uh, what I'm sure is just an insane amount of hair products. They might put some extensions in it, but yeah, that's the other thing that takes a long time. I mean, that poor kid uh, spends, I think, like three or four hours in hair and makeup every day. Is he over 18, though? He is now, yeah. So it's okay now. Uh, when I think, when the show started, he wasn't yet. And so that was, that was a difficulty. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing. I, yeah, you learn being on set is if you have actors who are under eighteen, there are time limits. If they are under sixteen, there are even more time limits. And so you never want to write anything with kids. You don't want to write anything with pets. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of things you don't think about until you've actually seen it in action. So, do you have any advice on thriving in a Zoom room? Yeah, I mean it's very difficult. Um, it's not quite, it's not as bad as I think we all thought it was going to be, is, is what I'll say. I mean, I think when you hear, you know, virtual Zoom room, everyone was just like, oh my gosh, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be glitchy. Um, it's really not that bad. Um, I think you have to have showrunners who are sort of looking around or, you know, someone running the room, looking around for the people who are trying to speak and can't get a word in or you have to have some sort of system because it's so easy for someone to get drowned out if their microphone isn't loud enough. So I think it's incumbent on the, the person running the room to really notice that, but it's helpful if all the writers can, you know, talk about and agree, okay, we're going to have a hand raising system. Or if you have something to say, put it in the chat if you, if you can't uh, get a word in. Um, so, you know, it is difficult in that respect, but you know, it, it does take everyone being a little more conscious of other people trying to speak. And if you see someone trying to speak and getting cut off, then um, especially if you're a more senior writer, then you know you should say, hey, look, Rand is trying to say something or she's been trying to say something for a few minutes here. Let's, let's let, her, let her talk for a second. Yeah, how big is your room and what's the ratio of returning writers and new writers? Um, there are 10 of us, including the showrunners for season four. Um, Eight people were returning, uh, not including me. Um, and so me, and then there was one other uh, new writer. Uh, most of the writing staff, uh, probably the core of the writing staff has been on the show since season one. We've had a few new additions who, who've stuck around and you know brought a lot of new energy and new ideas to the room, which is always great. But it's also great to have people who've been on the show since day one and you know are just like really intimately familiar with with all the characters and the intentions of the creators from the beginning. Uh, so you are working with a very famous franchise. Uh, how is that? Do you, how many liberties do you feel like you can take with that? Or is it pretty restrictive? Um, it's not restrictive because we're not, you know, it's not a remake or anything. We are, you know, in the Karate Kid universe, but we are, you know, we have new characters. We can do new things with the characters. Um, Everybody, all the writers are huge Karate Kid fans. And so we do like, you know, to pay homage to the movies, even in small ways, wherever we can. Um, I would never, I wouldn't call it restrictive at all, though. I think it's just, you know, um, there are things we want to do on the show. Like we want to, you know, 
come out and say, oh, actually, Miyagi was secretly a horrible person and did all these awful things. Like, that's, you know, something that would upset the fans and that would upset us too. But it's certainly not restrictive because we do have, we can create new characters whenever we want. And we can also bring back old characters. So I think it's actually kind of freeing in a way because you have a really solid foundation to build a whole new world on. Yeah, that makes sense. This is kind of random. How do they come up with the name Eagle Fang? Eagle Fang. Um, I can't remember. I was, you know, I was there that day. I can't remember the exact thing. You know, I remember we had just this huge list of possible names. And then, I mean, obviously Johnny's favorite movie is Iron Eagle. And then, you know, someone, so I think someone said Eagle Fang. And then right away I was like, yes, that's, you know, that's just the perfect thing. Yeah, totally. It was hilarious too. Um, it's awesome. Uh, how do you balance fighting and story? Like, is there, is, I feel like, is there fighting every episode or at least the third season or how do you, how do you guys plan the um, fights? Yeah, there are like, in, you know, so I think in season two, we had like a major action sequence in every single episode. Season three, not quite as much. Um, we see the fights as being a part of the story. You know, they're never fighting just to fight or because uh, we haven't had a fight in a while. I guess they should fight. It's always, always motivated by story and character. Um, fighting is the way that these people deal with their problems. So, you know, if somebody's going through a hard time, uh, or someone's clashing with another character in some way, then it would make sense for them to get into a fight. But it's not something that we do just because it's always motivated by story. What is some of your advice for writing a great fight scene? Um, I think, yeah, focusing on the characters and their emotions going into the fight scene. Because, you know, it's not the writer's job to come up with like super awesome choreography because you're going to have. Uh, fight choreographers on set and stunt people on set who know a lot more than most writers do and so you know you can always leave that part to the professionals uh the writing part you want to make sure that everything is motivated um by the characters and what they're going through at the time if someone is losing a fight there needs to be a reason why are they you know in an emotional bad space or did are do they have something going on if someone's winning there should be a reason why you know i think just making sure that everything is motivated um, is, is probably the most important thing to do. Yeah. Do you do karate yourself? I don't do karate. I did Taekwondo as a kid and I do Krav Maga now, um, which is, you know, uh, kind of a Cobra Kai mentality, but you know, the, a lot more about uh, practicality than, than about doing cool flying kicks. Mm-hmm. Do you find doing that stuff yourself is helpful in writing? It can be helpful. I mean, it's useful to have, you know, a very like basic knowledge of of certain things, but, you know, most of the writers don't have any kind of karate background. Um, It's also, you know, the show isn't like super strict about like the, if you watch the fights, if you're a martial arts expert, you'll notice they're not doing pure karate all the time. You know, it's, it's a mix of stuff. It's a, it's a fun action movie kind of thing. It doesn't always have to be super uh, super true to reality. Um, but it's helpful to know a few things, uh, but you know, it's also good to just use your imagination and to, to focus on what makes the most sense for the story and for the characters versus, you know, well, you know, this specific move isn't a karate move, therefore they can't do it. Like that's not, you know, that's not fun for anyone. (laughs) Have you gotten any backlash from the karate community of people being like, that's not correct. I don't think so. I mean, I think most people are just excited about the show and I think it has brought, um, you know, some more interest into karate. Um, 
it's unfortunate that, you know, the Netflix debut happened during the pandemic and most karate dojos are closed because I'd be interested to see if, you know, enrollment went up at all. But I don't think anyone, you know, expects the show to be like a strict recreation of, of all karate moves. Um, if they do expect that, then, you know, they should have probably given that up by now. <laughs> do you have any favorite projects before um, Cobra Kai? And you talk about Cagney and Lacey. Yeah, uh, that was a pilot I worked on. Um, so I worked for, for two years, I worked for Bridget Carpenter, who uh, was a showrunner. She had worked on Friday Night Lights and Parenthood and, you know, just a lot of uh, really amazing dramas. And she had a few pilots at, at CBS um, that unfortunately didn't go forward. Yeah, Cagney and Lacey was a really cool experience, uh, just watching her kind of come up with the pilot and um, sort of learning the whole network police procedural uh, sort of type because that was not something I'd ever done before or thought about doing. Uh, but it is really useful because the structure of it is, you know, you have to have um, like a huge twist going to every single commercial break. And I think, you know, in the era of streamers and stuff, people hear that and they're like, oh, that sounds so restrictive and artificial, but it's actually incredibly useful because it forces you to basically keep getting and earning your audience's attention and to keep giving people a reason to come back. I think a lot of streaming shows have the issue of feeling sort of saggy in the middle, you know, like, uh, or overly, overly long. And I think that's where having a bit of a background in, in broadcast and shows like Cagney and Lacey can come in handy because it teaches you to keep grabbing people's attention. And network television is very underrated. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. There's some really good network shows. Um, I've always really enjoyed actually like a lot of the CW shows like Jane, the Virgin was my favorite show on TV for a very long time. And, you know, they are underrated. Um, they don't get as much attention, but you know, that's the landscape. Do you have a favorite writer? Favorite writer is uh, whoever I'm trying to get to hire me at that's the moment. Adjacent to that, do you have a favorite writer to work with? Um, you know, I've only worked on Cobra Kai so far. I would say those guys are definitely my favorite writers. I, I mean, I think they just approach this with such a, a fun attitude of like not taking it too seriously, but also taking it seriously enough uh, to show how much they love the original franchise and to win over the original fans. But they also, you know, have a sense of humor. Um, there's a line in my episode where the city councilwoman says, frankly, I don't understand the Valley's fascination with karate. And, you know, this is in the middle of an extremely dramatic sequence about winning back the All Valley. And yet, you know, the writers take a step back and say, yes, we know this is kind of ridiculous, but these characters really do care. Um, and so that's something that I've really appreciated working with is just the attitude of like, yes, we're sincere in how much we care about this, but we also are aware of, you know, the inherent craziness of this premise. And, you know, we're gonna make sure you know, you're you aware as well. Totally. In Cobra Kai, you guys do a lot of, you deal with, you know, different personalities and things of like, like he was, you know, talking down to kids and stuff like that. Do you guys sit there and talk about that, that kind of um, toxic masculinity type of behavior versus, babying people, all of that. Do you guys sit down and talk about that? Um, in a sense, I mean, um, I think there's an awareness about like, you know, 
nobody on the show is like, no, none of the writers are like Johnny types who are <laughs> berating people all the time. We're all, we're all much closer to Daniel. We're, we're, we're a nice group of people. Um, I think, you know, there's just uh, an eagerness to show both sides. There's, you know, an absolute truth to the way Johnny talks to kids and the way he motivates people can be very helpful for some people. But when you go too far with it, then you end up with a situation like Johnny was in himself where you become a very toxic person. So, I mean, we haven't talked about, you know, in the abstract sense of toxic masculinity, we do talk about a lot in the more, more as it applies to the characters as, you know, well, Johnny was taught this way and that's why he acts this way. Or, you know, Tori was taught this and that's why she's reacting this way. Um, so that's something we talk about, about a lot. Um, how the way you're taught and you, the way the environment you live in, uh, how that affects you is, is something that um, we talk about a lot for the characters. Do you also get into the conversation of what's right and what's wrong? Or do you try to stay away from that? Um, I, we, we stay away from it in like concrete terms. I think we talk about it a lot in how the characters see it. Um, so, you know, Johnny thought that talking to the kids this way was the right thing to do. And then he saw, uh, what Miguel did at the tournament and the way Miguel was acting and he sort of realized the error of his ways. So we tried to show, you know, you know, this is a show where there's a lot of gray areas. Uh, no one's completely right or wrong. And so I think we try to show always through the characters' perspectives and um, how they learn uh, to change their ways and how, you know, this thing that they were taught might not be so great anymore, or maybe this was useful in one way, but it's not useful in another. I love the, like all the character arcs too. Like, do you guys plan those? How, how, how much do you plan those in advance, character arcs? Um, so the showrunners do have, you know, a long-term plan for the show and there are things you know, that they wanted to do in season one that they didn't end up doing until later seasons and so on. Um, they do come into every season with a sort of a general plan of like, okay, well, this is a season where, you know, we, they always knew season three would end with Johnny and Daniel working together for the first time. And then it was just a matter of, okay, how do we get them to that place and what has to happen to make that happen? Um, you know, with the, uh, with the other characters, with the more, you know, uh, minor characters, there's a lot more leeway and a lot of more things change as we go through the writer's room process. Um, we mostly do work season to season for all of the characters, although we did, you know, some things, you know, um, they always knew that Johnny and Daniel would end up working together against Crease and they were timing it to be around the end of season three. But um, a lot of stuff we, you know, work out as we go. So when you say the show renders had a long-term plan, how, how long is this long-term? Um, this show, it's not going to go on forever. I mean, we don't have an endpoint yet. Uh, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, it's not going to be like The Simpsons where it just keeps going and going and going, you know. I think there will be a natural endpoint to this story. I have no idea when that will be. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping that we get a few more seasons. Um, and, yeah, we'll see what happens. Nice. What do you, are you thinking about what to do when that happens, what your next job will be? How do you kind of set yourself up for the next point of your career? Um, yeah, I mean, so you always have, for me, you always have to be working on something. Um, I've, you know, while I was working on Cobra Kai season four, I was also finishing up a pilot that my managers were sending around. And so that's something that could be uh, getting me the next job. And um, even now, you know, we're on hiatus at the moment, I'm working on other stuff. So um, 
yeah, you do always have to be thinking about it, but you know, there's also a lot of things that are just out of your control. Um, I'm lucky I have uh, really great reps who, you know, are sending me around to a lot of places. I'm also lucky to be coming off of a show that is quite popular and that a lot of people really like. Uh, so, you know, that's very helpful as well. And you, you know, all you can really do is just write the best things that you can write and, you know, try to put them out into the world and hope that it works out. <laughs> How did you get repped? Um, so my manager is actually, uh, she was my first boss. Um, I worked, I was her assistant at CIA and then she, yeah, when she, she left to be a manager. Um, and after I got my, uh, promotion to staff writer, I called her. And so I think that's the, that's the tough part is that a lot of new writers start looking for reps and, you know, if you don't already have a writing credit, like a manager or agent, isn't going to be able to do anything for you anyway. Um, Nobody wants to give someone their first job. The only way to get your first writing job really is to either be extremely lucky or to have some sort of connection to the showrunners. So um, I was, you know, lucky enough to to have gotten the writer's assistant job and to have gotten my staff writing job that way. And as soon as you have that credit, especially on a sh you know a hit show, I mean, managers are managers are happy to take your call. So totally. Do you, do you have any routines or like, what do you do to make your, yourself a stronger writer? Um, you know, I read a lot. I read uh, a lot of novels. Um, I've been reading, you know, in quarantine, just a ton of mystery novels. Um, and because I've been, you know, trying to work on a mystery show, a murder mystery. Um, I want to say I have a routine, really. I don't do, you know, writing exercises or anything like that. I do try to write every day and I do just try to read all the time and to watch all the new stuff that's coming out. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, have a set like, uh, I'm not one of those, you know, I sit down at my desk at 9 a.m. and I write for two hours and then I eat lunch and I, I don't do that. Um, you know, unless I'm like on a deadline, I'm more, you know, I try to write every day, but it's not always at the same time. You know, as long as it gets done, you know, the routine doesn't quite matter as much to me. I had a routines question. I'm going to cross that one out. Uh, <laughs> my other one is, <laughs> um, what are your deadlines like for Cobra Kai? Um, it depends. You know, uh, I, for this past season, like I had a week from the time we finished breaking the episode uh, to turn in the first outline. And from there, I spent about um, three weeks, I think, probably on the first draft. But then the showrunners were just totally buried and didn't have time to read it. And I didn't end up like, doing a rewrite until like a couple weeks later. And then there's a point where they needed another rewrite and I had like three days to do it. So it, it varies depending on production. Um, if you're on a network show where they're doing 22 episodes a season, then you're going to have a very strict timeline. You know, you're going to have maybe a week to, to turn out a first draft. Um, Cobra Kai is not quite that strict. You know, we have a little bit more time, but we also don't leave the room while we're on script. We stay in the room. And so you're writing on your own time. Um, so yeah, um, that's, you know, it does vary a lot depending on where we are in the process. Interesting. Do you do any uh, rewrites as, as a room or is it usually just the individual writers being sent off? It's usually just the individual writers. Um, so our writer's room wraps up, um, before production starts. And so a lot of the times the showrunners, you know, won't, won't get around to reading the later scripts until we're already in production and the writer's room is closed. So, you know, we don't do like a ton of room writing, obviously, because 
everyone's moved on. And then in that case, do they do the rewrite or do they like reach out? To um, it depends. Like for, for my episode, because, you know, I was available and I did have time, I did the rewrite. Um, for a couple other episodes, the writers were already working on other things and I think just didn't have the time. So uh, the showrunners or uh, one of the other, you know, uh, co-EPs who were on set did the rewrite. Favorite writing advice or favorite writing books? I think the best advice is just always look for motivation. No one should ever just be doing things because that's what they're supposed to do right now. Um, it should always be like, always ask yourself, why are these people doing this? Why is this person saying this line? Why is this person doing this? Why is this person leaving the scene at the moment? There should always be a reason for everything. At first I thought that was a much more existential answer and you were saying, find our motivation to be writing. Why are oh, we no. writing? <laughs> <laughs> no, character motivation, got it. Yeah. <laughs> what is your purpose in life? <laughs> that I can't help you with, that you're on your own. Are there any books you'd recommend? Um, I really liked, uh, this book called the art, no, it's called the war of art. And it's kind of the, uh, this like very motivational, but like in a kind of an ass kicking way of like, just like get over your shit and start writing and like, stop making excuses and stop, you know, telling yourself you'll do it tomorrow. Just do it. And I think I found that very helpful because I think as writers, we like to procrastinate and like, I always like to make excuses of like, oh, well, I had to get up early this morning and I'm kind of tired now. So I probably shouldn't have to write tonight. And, you know, that's like, that's how you end up going two months without writing anything is by making excuses for yourself. So yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the war of arts is, is definitely a good, a good kick in the ass if you're, if you're looking for one. Yeah. Uh, so outside of writing, what shows are you watching? Um, so I'm like super late to the game. I'm finally catching up on Stranger Things. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm that person who like when everyone's freaking out over a show, I'm like, well, I'm going to be the person who doesn't watch the show and like, you know, is left out of this because, you know, just because everyone else likes it doesn't mean I'm going to like it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I am really enjoying it so far. It's a very fun, like, I, you know, love all the 80s nostalgia. I love all the references. And um, I mean, they're, you know, really just recreating a lot of our favorite movies, which is just, you know, so much fun for me. I've really enjoyed that. And um, I'm really about to start uh, this new show called It's a Sin, um, which I watched the pilot of. It's... Um, from Russell Davies, he's in the UK. It's about um, sort of, this sounds depressing, it's not. It's about like AIDS in London in the 1980s. But what I like about it is that it really focuses on the joy of the LGBT characters and just like, it's sort of the, the LGBT story you never ever see, which is no, these people are happy and like they're having a really great time. And yes, this horrible thing is looming for them, but they're also normal people who find joy in their lives and it's not all death and gloom all the time. Mm -hmm. And do you have some favorite shows? I know you mentioned one earlier and now it's leaving my brain. Oh, Jane the Virgin, which is such yes. a great show. Do you have any other favorites that you recommend to people? All time. Uh, well, that's a great one. I, yeah, all time, all time greatest show for me is Friday Night Lights. Um, I think yeah, it's just, I mean, I grew up in like a huge football town. Like our team wasn't actually good. We were terrible, but like just the <laughs> the culture around it and like the, like I didn't even like football and like we would still just go to the games every single Friday night. And I think that's like a thing that people who didn't grow up with it don't realize it's an actual thing. 
Um, but it really is. And I mean, they just did such a great job of capturing that world and making you care about high school football. So uh, for me, that's yeah my all-time favorite. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Central Florida. Oh. <laughs> Where in Central Florida? Uh, Cocoa Beach, kind of near Orlando. Got it. Yeah, I went a football to town with no good football. Players. I went to college in Florida, so I was just. Oh, yeah. Where? Miami. Oh, cool. Yeah. They have better football players. <laughs> Bigger population, right? Yeah. <laughs> that tends to help. Yeah. Small town, uh, small town, very small town. It's slum pickings, and your football teams, at least my football team, was not yeah. so good. <laughs> In Cobra Kai, you do these flashbacks to the movies. And we were wondering if the if in season one, it's the first movie. In season two, it's the second movie. In season three, or if you guys have any organization of the movies like that. Uh, so we don't have like a specific organization of, you know, season two will only refer to Karate Kid 2 or, or anything like that. It's more just a function of how the story has progressed. So, I mean, in season one, we were just sort of introducing people to all these new characters and, you know, uh, showing how the results of how they've been affected by Karate Kid, um, especially because season one, you know, introduces you to adult Johnny and he's only in the first movie, really. So um, there just wasn't room to really delve into Karate Kid two and three in season one. Um, And same thing in season two, you know, there just wasn't a ton of, there was a little bit of Karate Kid three in there, but there's just not a ton of space. I mean, there's so much to unpack from those movies. Uh, you can't fit it all into one season while you're also trying to tell new stories. So, um, you know, we don't deliberately like uh, organize it in that way, but we do parcel it out. So it's not, you know, um, you know, you can't explain all of Karate Kid 3, like right off the bat in season one, because then people are just gonna be like, no, this is too much. This is this is insane. What is this show? Um, so, uh, <laughs> You know, we do take our time and, you know, we try to make sure that the, these flashbacks are always motivated by story and by where the characters are. And, you know, we're not just doing it just to do it. You know, um, Daniel always has a reason for going to uh, Mr. Miyagi memory. You know, it's not just because we want to fit in another one now. It's just it's always motivated by what he's doing in his story. Do you only take from the movies or are there like... Um you know, the director's cut scenes, the ones that were never shown, or do you even film some extra scenes from the eighties? So we have all of the dailies and all of the deletes. So every single, all of the footage that was shot for all of the movies we have access to. And so when we know what scene we want to refer to from the original movies, we will sometimes go and look through um, the footage and all the footage and use a couple of angles that actually weren't even in the original movies if they help serve the, the purpose of the story. There are a couple of deleted scenes um, from the original movie that we, we've talked about using. Uh, we've definitely referred to a couple of them. None of them have quite made it in yet, um, but we're, we're hoping to, to use uh, one of the more famous scenes. There was a deleted scene of um, Johnny puts a blueberry pie under Daniel's seat and he sits in it. And then that starts a fight in the cafeteria. We just didn't make it into the movie. And I, I, we haven't, I don't think we've used it in the show yet, but uh, that's, you know, something that we have access to. <laughs> I hope you guys do. I want to see that scene. Yeah. 
I can't make any promises, but it is, you know, we have all of those deleted scenes and, you know, things that the fans haven't seen yet. So it's, you know, it's always really cool to, to have all of that. Well, your next uh, episode should be the good, the bad, and the blueberry pie. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to clap for you. Yeah, thank okay. you. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. This was fun. Um, it's yeah. always fun to talk to talk Cobra Kai. You know, it's, yeah. uh, I love how much people love the show. It's really gratifying. Subscribe for more episodes and check out Sketches, sketches written and performed by Deadline Junkies. Watch it at skedjes.com. Thanks for listening to the Deadline Junkies podcast.